Time to Travel with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Time to Travel. Well, on the show this evening, I'll be chatting with Rick Hutton, MD of Sleeping Out, South Africa's premier online accommodation directory, about their ongoing free accommodation program. Annette Kessler, editor of Showcook, will be on the line a little later, and we'll be chatting about the Showcook Interhotel Challenge for trainee chefs and wine stewards. And then in the My Town feature, I'll be chatting with listener Guy Kors about the Marion Hill Landfill Conservancy in the Etiquani municipality in KZN. And Guy was the first listener to send through information about his town, and I'm delighted that he'll be joining us this evening. And finally, I'll be chatting with world-renowned raconteur Rob Caskey about his two upcoming talks at the one and only in Cape Town on the Anglo-Zulu Wars and early exploration in Antarctica. And if you need any information about something you hear on Time to Travel this evening, you can find it on Facebook. You just go to Travel on SAFM. There's also a link there on the page if you'd like to download a podcast of the show. But if you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on travel at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. The Standard Bank Jazz Festival kicks off in Grahamstown on the 27th of June. SAFM is proud once again to be the official radio partner. Join us for 10 days of amazing jazz and blues, featuring Mikasa, Esavan Naidu, and dozens more local and international jazz superstars. Also featuring the 2013 Young Artist Award winner for jazz, Shane Cooper. SAFM will be there to bring you some amazing performances and keep you in the loop with all the backstage action. But there's nothing quite like being there, so book now at CompuTicket and head to Grahamstown for the Standard Bank Jazz Festival. The SABC is looking for a demand manager who will be responsible for conducting statistical and trend analyses, working with all SABC user departments in determining their requirements and develop good relationships with key customers. Applicants must have a bachelor's degree in supply chain management, planning and forecasting, or B Engineering, BSc, BCom in supply chains, plus an advanced degree in MBA, MBL, or similar field. The incumbent must have eight years' experience in a business environment, preferably supply chain management. Preference will be given, but not limited, to candidates from designated groups in terms of Employment Equity Act and the SABC's Employment Equity Initiatives. Kindly send your applications, including a comprehensive CV, to the HR Manager, Group Services, Room 2644, Radio Park, or email groupvacancies at sabc.co.za. The closing date is the 7th of June, 2013. Time to travel on SAFM. Well, free accommodation is an exciting initiative from Sleeping Out. Guests have the opportunity to stay for free at establishments across the country. Now, basically, how it works is the program gives guests a 10% chance of being refunded in full for their booking. Rick Hutton is MD of Sleeping Out. Rick, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Carl, and welcome to you. Thank you. you. You've had quite an amazing 12 months with this program. Yes, Carl, and it's been absolutely incredible. I mean, we started this program just a year ago, and as you mentioned, it's, um, it's a program where, on average, we give one in ten guests a complete refund on their booking fee when they stay at participating establishments. And 
We've just really reached a milestone now because in just a year we've given away over one million rand. So we've just passed that milestone now. So it's been really exciting. The most exciting thing when I've been looking at all the information about this competition, well, it's not a competition, it's really a lucky draw because you put your, your booking goes into a draw and one, you know, pretty much one in ten gets uh, their free accommodation. That's correct, yes. The, the most amazing was the woman who won, it was almost 47,000 rand back in, in bookings. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, Christine Prevost, it was a single booking that she won of 46,200 rand. And in fact, just this month alone, um, one winner got over 25,000. So there's really no limit. Uh, well, the limit is 100,000. Anything, any booking up to 100,000, they have a one in 10 chance of, of getting a refund on. So how does this actually work now, Rick? Just for those who, I mean, I remember when you told me the last time, but maybe other people haven't heard about this before. Basically, you have to make your booking via the Sleeping Art website. And how does it work from there and which establishments offer this? Right. Well, you go to Sleeping Out. That's www.sleepingout.co.za. And you make your normal search uh, by location and by the facilities that you want. And when the search results come up, you'll see that at the top of the search results, the participating establishments are highlighted in yellow. And if you, if you make a booking at any of those, you automatically get a 1 in 10 chance of a full refund. And this is not a situation where you have to make 10 bookings in order to get one free. It doesn't work like that. Your very, very first booking um, can actually be free. And what's quite exciting and, and quite interesting when I look through at some of the winners is recently we've had two different guests who've both made only two bookings each, and both those guests have got both those bookings refunded. Wow. So they're sort of thinking, this is crazy. These people are giving away accommodation <laughs> free. Every time they book, they get a full refund. So it's really been very exciting. You don't get told prior to having stayed at the establishment that you've won the, the free accommodation. It has to happen afterwards. That's correct, because obviously if somebody knew beforehand, they'd sort of keep booking and cancelling until such time as they won. So what happens is that you have your stay, you complete your stay at the hotel or B&B or wherever it is that you've booked at, and then you send in your comments, which is a normal thing on most websites, uh, commenting on your stay. And what that does is it triggers in the computer the calculation that's done, as I say, in the, in the computer, so there's no manual involvement, and determines if you are the one in ten at that time uh, that is, that's going to get the accommodation for free. And then, you know, we contact you within a day. So people will think, well, if I've got to fill in a comment card and I say something not that nice about an establishment, I'm not even going to have a chance then. That isn't how it works. No, it, does, it doesn't work at all because, as I say, just the fact that they filled in the comment, that comes back into the computer system and then the calculation happens in the computer automatically. You, if you're not happy, you can say so. If you think it's great and wonderful, you can say so. It has absolutely nothing to do with whether you're going to actually get a, a complete refund or not. And are there any other criteria, Rick, that uh, make somebody eligible for this refund? No, not at all. The only question is you, you have to choose one of the establishments 
that has elected to be in the program. And as I mentioned, they're highlighted in yellow and they have the free accommodation logo on their listing. As long as it's one of those, and as long as your listing or your, your cost of your booking is anything from one rand to 100,000 rand, then you will have a, a, a one in 10 chance of getting that booking refunded, irrespective of how many times you've won before. How are the establishments involved in this? They actually pay towards this pr- the prize, if you like? Yes, well, um, the way that it works is that the establishment who've uh, elected to be in the program, they contribute 10% of every booking into that, uh, what we call the free accommodation fund. And it is from that fund that we actually refund the guests. So it doesn't cost the guests anything at all. They don't pay anything extra. They'll pay the same for the accommodation as they would anywhere else. And um, they get that uh, refund. What's in it for the establishment is that by making the 10% contribution to the fund, we move them up to the top of the search results. So this gives them a better chance of attracting bookings. So although they're giving away 10% on each booking, they're actually getting, and our statistics have showing, uh, more than twice the number of bookings that the establishments who aren't on the program are getting. So that is really the payoff for them. And the other thing that people possibly might consider, or they might think about, is what is sleeping out getting out of all of this? Basically nothing, because all the money that the establishments are paying, that gets paid out to the guests. That's true from a financial viewpoint, but obviously, as you can imagine, if you are a guest looking to make a booking and you have a choice of a number of different websites, yes. you will rather go to the website which is uh, offering this opportunity. So what has happened is that we have had a big upsurge in the number of bookings on our site, and so really it's a case where the guest is winning the establishments are winning, and we are winning as well because it's making the site that much more popular with the public. So yours is mainly from the perspective of interest and goodwill rather than financial? Yes, because, you know, our duty really is to act on behalf of the establishments and to try to get them the most number of bookings that we can. And part of that is obviously um, featuring well on Google by having good SEO Uh, But it's also partly coming up with unique programs that attract people to the site so that we can give a better service to the establishments, give them more bookings, and at the same time, give something back to the guests. And they think it's fantastic. It seems to be, I mean, the way that things are going these days with bookings and travel and that sort of thing, that people are quite happy to do their own thing. You know, before it was, well, you know, had to book through a travel agent, you had to book through some sort of organization, but you can now go on the internet and do it yourself. It just makes life so much easier. Yeah, I think people want to be more involved. I mean, travel agents, I think, had their place before. Um, and maybe if you're going on a complex trip overseas or something, you might mm. need the help of a travel agent. But if you are somebody booking within South Africa, whether it's pleasure or business, um, you want to be able to go onto the site and, and, and make your own choices. And also what we do is that we have quite a, uh, a, an extensive set of search criteria. So if you are saying, well, I want a place that's a B&B, it's between, say, 500 and 700 rand, I want air conditioning, I want a swimming pool, and it must be close to a beach, you can actually put that in, and Sleeping Out will actually search for those establishments for you. So it makes it a lot easier 
for you to find somewhere that's got the specific requirements that you're looking for. It just sounds like you're making my life a whole lot easier, Rick. Well, we're trying. (laughs) That's always the bottom line. I always look for things that make my life just that little bit easier. So thank you so much for joining us on the show, and I wish you much success. Is this going to be an ongoing project, this uh, free accommodations? It's not going to suddenly grind to a halt in in next month or something? No, it's been tremendously successful, and uh, as you can see, it's it's basically self-funding. So there's absolutely no reason to stop it, and uh, we're very excited about reaching this milestone. And um, we just invite everybody to come on to Sleeping Out. That's uh, www.sleepingout.co.za. Make their bookings and uh, hope that they can get their refund. Wonderful. Well, I wish you many more years of uh, happy sleeping. With all, you know, the people can come and, and book their wonderful holidays with you, and uh, hopefully, we one of those that gets their money back. That sounds great. Definitely a good reason to go and book your accommodation on Sleeping Out. Rick, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thanks, Karen. Thanks very much. Thank you. Rick Hutton is MD of Sleeping Out, South Africa's premier online accommodation directory. And if you'd like to find out more about the free accommodation program, or if you'd just just like to go and book some accommodation for yourself, take a look at www.sleeping-out.co.za. Time to travel on SAFM. Well, the hotel industry in South Africa is playing an enormous role in the upliftment, training, mentoring and nurturing of thousands of young people that come into the industry. The Show Cook Into Hotel Challenge involves a lineup of top luxury Western Cape hotels and their executive chefs and sommeliers or wine ambassadors who are supporting and mentoring candidate chefs and wine stewards to create optimal wine and food pairings. Now, these are currently being introduced at individual lunches organized by each participating hotel. And I'm joined on the line now by Annette Kessler and she's editor of Showcook. Annette, good evening. Welcome Hello. to the show. Good evening. How are you? I'm very well. This is rather an exciting project you're working on here. <laughs> yes, it actually is. I must say it's a very heartwarming and wonderful project because um, it really has legs, you know. It's going to go on for a very long time. So we're delighted to be able to do it. Um, and it really happened because For some years now, we've been doing the one and only Reaching for Young Stars, which was really all about the young people whose parents could afford to send them to all the wonderful cooking schools and um, universities and everything where, you know, they can actually um, have marvelous tuition. Um, But in fact, we were asked about what about the young people who really didn't have that opportunity and who joined uh, hotels um, with the hope that they would have their training in-house. And that is exactly what happens. They start as pot washers and cleaning the floors and all of that. And one day, five or six years later, you go in and find them making Bernays sauce. So it is a fantastic program. And you've managed to scoop some of the, I mean, there's top hotel, 10 top hotels. I mean, really the top cream of the bunch in Cape Town. Yes, they really are. I do. I'm, I'm very happy about that. But each one of them, you know, um, is so, has got social responsibility programs. Mm. They support welfare groups. They, they mentor. They do everything that they can to, um, you know, to support and to um, give everyone a leg up. But this must have been quite difficult to pick because I'm assuming there's just one of each, a chef and a wine steward at each of the hotels, or are there more? No. You see, what happens is that 
these pe- these young people are there anyway, so um, all of them have the opportunity of participating, and they are very creative and talented, you know, young cooks among them. So each hotel really selected their own candidates. Oh, right, okay. So that's, the, you know, that's the best way uh, it works. And what we are doing is, well, we're trying to make this as, accessible and attractive as possible for them. Um, The prizes that we are doing will naturally be those that have got an educational bent. Um, We, you know, the first prize, as you possibly know, is that the young winner will go to the Sukitai in Thailand for a three-month stint. Um, And after that, she will produce a dinner at the South African Embassy in Bangkok Coming back, she will have a wonderful evening, a press evening um, at uh, Plaza de Mill. And uh, eventually, we do hope that they might even end up um, being vetted by the South African Cooks Association and perhaps go on to the Culinary Olympics at some stage. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really has, as I said before, many legs. And we hope that it will, it will run for quite a while. There will be a celebratory black tie dinner at the vineyard. Um, and that in itself is a very interesting evening because each hotel will produce um, their own tables, their own everything, from the, literally from the, the napery up, right to the, to the glassware, to the accessories, and to a marvellous silver and white arrangement, which will be judged by Flower Walker and uh, Jay Smith. I'm sure that those are names that you know. Absolutely. As I said, you know, the, the, everything here seems to be the, the pick of the bunch. And for the, the young people taking part in this, the, it sounds to me almost like the sky is the limit. I mean, this could be the start of the most amazing, amazing future, well, an incredible it, career for them. You know, it, it really could be. But what I, I would like to say at the outset, that Cape Legends you know, have these marvellous wine estates. And really, if it wasn't for them, this wouldn't probably happen. So what happens is that each of the young cooks has to produce a three-course menu using having, you know, pork as the main, as the main dish, really, because it's, very, it's a very versatile meat and a very reasonable one. So they have a budget, and they more or less have to stick to that. In fact, they do have to stick to that. And then... Um, Cape Legends it partners each of these hotels with their specific estate, and the wine is partnered with the uh, the menu, and that's you know they work around all of that. So you can imagine what what goes into each of those um, um, lunches finally. But the the actual lunch, which is produced by the young. Um, Candidates will be produced at a cook-off, which is taking place at the South African Chefs Academy, um, where a whole panel of judges, including Paul Hartman and Marilyn Cooper of the Cape Wine Academy, who incidentally has given us the most marvellous bursaries that will take the, 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 the winning wine steward up to just before um, his master's. So there's, there's a great deal um, of, of fabulous uh, prizes, which, they, you know, they stand to win, um, such as the Kitchen Aids, 
which are amazing and which, you know, we, we're getting quite a few of those, which is great. And that is um, very special. So, you know, they, when they, they, will, they will not leave with just simply a, um, sort of a glamorous prize. It will, it will also be things which they can really use and, um, and help them to have a leg up. Is this going to continue to be an annual event, Annette? Well, they're talking about it, actually. <laughs> but I think we might have to include um, a few of the Johannesburg hotels. Um, we haven't decided on what or who just yet, but I do have a few in mind. And I think that it should become national um, because there's nothing like it in the country. Um, and you now have to add that it's the first time in Cape Town that 10 hotels have actually got together and are producing this sort of event on one evening. It's not just a casual chef's um, dinner. Each one of these hotels have committed themselves and are in it, boots and all. It's, it's fabulous, really. Because the, this country, as we all know, is is absolutely ripe with talent, and you are picking the best of them now, and and giving, as you said, giving them a leg up. And we can expect to have the most amazing chefs and wine stewards in the country if this is going to continue. Well, you know, if you think about it, for many many years, all the chefs that came into South Africa were either from London or they're from Germany or from wherever international. But that you know that ceased many years mm. ago. So we, we simply have, over the last few years, developed incredible talent, and we'd like to continue this, but not only with the talent that, you know, comes in from the, from the celebrated cookery schools, and they are wonderful, and we do great things with them, but also for people that haven't really had a great deal of education, but are able to come in at grassroots level and work their way up. I've done that myself over many, many years, um, you know, because I was with the vineyard and the townhouse originally, and it was fantastic to be able to see the kind of progress that, that happens. You know, eventually you can actually walk in and say, we're going to do this, this, and this, and they get it right to the, ta- to the actual taste of all those ingredients. It's quite incredible. I was actually talking to somebody on the show last week and mentioning that I'd been speaking to a number of South Africans who've travelled recently overseas who, and I was quite surprised because they came back, normally when people come back from overseas, they say, oh gosh, you know, the restaurants and the hotels and the yes. service is so much better overseas. This time I've been hearing more and more frequently now, oh my goodness, it's so good to be home because, you know, the food and the restaurants and the service and the hotels, so much better in South Africa. Well, and I thought, that's wonderful. I mean, they have. I mean, I think we've just come a, a long, long way. I think that in South Africa, and I have to say particularly in the Cape, because, you know, we're fortunate to having such um, exquisite places where you have the most glorious hotels. I mean, aren't they just special? They really, really are. They really are. Can I just move the conversation slightly yeah. away from the, from the challenge just for a moment, just to say congratulations on your fabulous Showcook website? Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. It's one of those addictive things, Annette. I, t- I tend to have to read all the recipes all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's not... Yeah. Well, it's... You know, I always tell everyone, they say, well, what's it all about? So I say, well, it's not actually a recipe. No, it's like. everything. But it I- is everything. It's also health. 
um, I'm very keen on, on you know, on um, eating correctly mm. and health and all that, all of it. So, um, yes, we've, um, it's, it's hospitality, it's travel, it's wine, it's food, it's a whole variety of, of those sorts of things. And at the same time, um, introducing these kind of competitions where one has the, the possibility of both sides of the coin and that has been so incredible, being able to, yes, do the schools and now doing the hotels. But whatever it is, it's developing youth and it's developing their skills. And it is incredible to see. So creative and so amazing. You know, one just stands there sometimes and you think, gosh, isn't this, isn't this incredible? <laughs> if people are wanting to find out, can they actually go and try out any of the meals that are being cooked up by these trainees, well, I wouldn't call they them trainees. Are considering, they are considering doing something like that. I don't think that it has been formalized yet, but I have a feeling that something like this will happen because I'm quite sure a lot of people would be interested. Mm. So possibly, you know, once it's, you know, sort of, um, once the competition has been held, I should say, I'm hoping that this is something that they will do. Um, and uh, possibly members of the public would enjoy that. Could we find details if that happens? Would you, we'll put, would you post it on show? You know. Would you put it on Showcook? Could people go and have a look at the website? Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, every one of these, these lunches that we're doing, every one of them will go on Showcook. Well, not every single recipe of of every single hotel, but certainly there will be representative recipes from all of them. And you'll have the wines, you'll have uh, the the food, you'll have the the chefs, you'll have the cooks. It will all be there. It's all being photographed and it will be absolutely glorious. Well, winter's coming. Guess what I'll be staying indoors to do? Reading Show Cook now for the next few weeks. Thank you very much, (laughs) Cora. Wonderful website. And Annette, thank you so much for your time. And congratulations on getting involved in this amazing initiative. And long may it last. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your time. Good night to you. Bye. Annette Kessler is editor of Show Cook. And to find out more about some fabulous food and wine, some travel, some health, a whole lot of things, and of course my favorite thing, recipes, you can go to www.showcook.com. Time to travel on SAFM. Well, in the My Town feature this evening, I'm delighted to be chatting with listener Guy Cause. He was the first one to respond to my call for this feature. He works for the Durban Solid Waste, the Cleansing and Solid Waste Department of the Etiquani Municipality in KZN. And he's going to be chatting to us about the Marion Hill Landfill Conservancy. Now, a landfill is rather an unlikely place to visit, or so you thought. But I guarantee you, you're going to be surprised. Guy, good evening. Welcome to the show. Uh, good evening, Karen, and to the listeners. It's, it's good to be with you. It's wonderful yeah. to finally get you on the show. I've been dying to have you on because I just think this is such a unique thing to tell people about because when I've mentioned it to a few people, I say it's a landfill. They say, well, that's not exactly the place I'd want to go and visit, you know. I say, well, listen to the show. You're going to find out why you should. So tell me a little bit about, this is only, I think, four years ago that this was reclaimed, if you like, this area. Well, it, it actually goes back quite a while. It's actually one of our landfill sites. Now, in Durban, our, all our landfill sites are, are, are world-class. You know, it's it's not the old rubbish dump of the past. Mm. It, it's basically um, a working landfill site. 
Um, and the reason why we introduced it was that our mandate as from the education section is to educate the public on solid waste management. You know, you start with littering and, and that sort of thing, but so many people don't know what happens to that black bag they put on the pavement that is collected every week. You know, do they just disappear? And we uh, in Durban actually distribute 60 million of these bags every year. So we brought these tours in, and we didn't know what the response would be like to, um, to introduce the public as to how waste is managed, and we've had a fantastic response. Now, you're the senior education officer, Guy, so what exactly do you do? Well, uh, basically, we have our, our roots back in, um, in the strategic section of Durban Solid Waste, or DSW, and our mandate is, is to actually educate the public about waste management. And in, in effect, we actually do environmental education, but we take it from a waste perspective. We started oh, some 30 years ago with just trying to improve the litter situation, situation in the city. And then we changed it, uh, the focus a little bit because street paper on the pavement is, is waste badly managed, as street paper in a bin is waste properly managed. So we encompass the whole aspect of um, so, uh, solid waste management. So we go around to schools, community groups, we teach them about proper waste management uh, programs such as this. Our radio programs help a lot. We um, uh, integrate it into schools programs, universities. You know, it's, it's a wide range. And if the community wants to be involved in waste management education or cleanups, we get there and we support them to take ownership of their own community in terms of waste management. Now, people think they're just going to come and it's all just about the waste management thing, which is the big part of it. But there's also, you've got a nursery there, there's a bird hide, you can do, go on walks on the rehabilitated areas. There's a lot more to do than, than just the educational side. Yes, it's actually uh, quite a, an, an interesting exercise because when we introduce the tours, it's always uh, at a time when it's an actual working site. Because uh, a landfill site does not come straight. We here's a bit of land, throw some uh, rubbish down, and that's it. And before it starts, we have to explain to the community how um, all the alien plants and the indigenous plants are removed. The indigenous plants are put into a nursery. Then the whole um, landfill site area is lined with rubber and stones and clay levels, etc. And that is before the first bit of waste goes into the site. And we do it in cells, like in areas. And as each um, cell fills up, then it's covered, and those indigenous plants from the nursery are replanted back in the same site. And on, on the top of it, uh, we have a bird hive. We've reestablished uh, a wetland, and bird watchers come there. And part of the tour is we take the people onto the uh, rubbish site that has been rehabilitated. Are people surprised when they get there, Guy? Yes, uh, you know, I think uh, last year I took a whole a number of youth groups, I think there were about 400 of them over a period of a week. And at the closing function, uh, the leader said, well, when people came from all over the country and heard they were going on a tour of a landfill site, they were highly disappointed. But for many of them, it became their favorite um, uh, visit of, of the tour of Durban. It is... Um, uh, quite interesting because you see it uh, actually being active and you get a bit of technical knowledge. It's, it's actually a conservancy, so you're in the middle of a, a landfill site, but at the same time you're um, in an environmentally sound area. 
And lots of interesting questions uh, arise which, which we answer. And, of course, our pride and joy is our gas to electricity plant, which has been going for a number of years. And, you know, all uh, landfill sites actually emit um, a methane gas, which is actually not very environmentally sound. And we have a system uh, which was helped with uh, European uh, money where we actually uh, capture the gas and transform it into electricity. And just the Marion Hill landfill site actually um, electrifies enough uh, power to electrify 2,753-bedroom homes. Good Lord. So that just comes from the landfill site. And then the other side is um, the leachate. When I explain to children, I say it's the juices that come out the bottom. Oh. <laughs> it, it would, uh, and I put, I've got, we've got a bottle of it there. It's a bit dark. Mm. And I say, please don't drink it. But we actually purify it and take it through reed bed processes, and we use that water from the leachate to keep the dust levels down at the top. So we're not using purified water through the Itagweni water system to keep the dust levels down. It's, it's like a closed-loop system. But looking at the kinds of tour groups that you take around there, Guy, it seems mostly to be locals, schools, tertiary in- institutions, businesses, ladies' groups, that sort of thing. What about visitors to the, to Etiquini, to KZN? Is this something that we should be putting on our sort of where we should go when we visit sort of list if we tourists? Well, especially if people are interested in environmental mm. groups, the groups aren't highly recommended. Because we get all sorts of people, especially um, people from overseas coming to our conferences, etc. About two weeks ago, I took a group of young leaders who, who are attending the World Islamic Economic Forum in, in Durban. And they came, and there were 26 of them, and we spent a wonderful time going over how we work it. And the questions were really challenging. So often we have specialist groups like that, businesses. In two weeks' time, I've got a tour of 53 um, grade R pupils, five-year-olds five year coming, and they come every year. So it's, it really covers the whole spectrum. And, you know, anybody can phone. It's part of our education program and book. But please, book well in advance. We dedicate Thursdays to tours, but sometimes we do do extra, extra tours. So, um, but, you know, we need quite advance notice to get a, an education officer who's available on that particular day. And the best part, though, I believe the tours are free. Oh, uh, yes, very much so, because it comes out of our education budget. You know, we're not there to make a quick buck. We're there to educate the people. And judging by the response and the repeat uh, uh, returns from schools and colleges and that sort of thing, uh, they actually go down very well. Is this the only one of these conservancies that, that is, has been put to this sort of use, Guy, or are there more in the area? Um, well, you know, in, we have taken some to the other ones in the city, but this is the one that we specially equipped because it's in Pine Town near Marion Hill, which is very easily, um, you can get to it very easily. It's just off the freeway, and uh, we have a boma on the, on the hill on the side, which the people can see very easily when we do the explanations. It's all very well equipped. We have done them with the other ones, but that's more on ad hoc and a very specialist basis. So we've rather centered all our resources on one particular landfill site. And you mentioned the bird hide. I mean, are you inundated with birders, people coming to look? What, what is there? Are there a number of different bird species there? Yes, I believe there are about 80-odd different uh, birds, you know, over a year. And just below the bird hide is the recreated uh, wetland. 
And, you know, even for the kids, uh, we take them down, we explain to them, you know, this is what a wetland is, and you can, they can see reeds and all that for the first time. And it's also the home of a very rare miniature chameleon, and um, which only is found in our Itagwini municipality. And so um, I was thrilled a few weeks ago, I was taking a group over, and there was one just sort of crossing our path, a tiny little chameleon. So it really is playing a, a strong environmental uh, role as well. Yeah, I was actually reading some information that said that in 1995, for the first time in South Africa and perhaps in the world, a landfill has been named a conservancy site, and that was Marion Hill. Yes, that, that was, and it's, it's actually proved a role model. And, you know, we're not trying to make it exclusive. We're trying to uh, share our message because we're very proud of the Marion Hill landfill site, well, all our landfill sites. And we have people from overseas. I remember taking the the equivalent of our CSRR from India over it to see how it's done. So they come from all over the world to see how we manage it. It's an amazing project. And as I said, you know, people hopefully listening to this will think, especially with the locals, you can get there faster. And we still have to come up to Durban to visit. Next time we're on holiday, we can all go and visit the landfill. But if you live in the area and you're looking for something different to do, think about going off to see the Marion Hill landfill site. It sounds like a wonderful day out. How long is the tour, Guy? How long are they going to? We can tailor it. um, You know, I've taken some specialist groups just for an hour. Mm. But usually between two, two and a half, three hours, depending on the people and, um, you know, also sounds a bit crazy, but a lot of people come uh, have the tour and then picnic <laughs> on the <laughs> landfill site. Um, I love there's, this. There's no smell because we have odor control. I mean, I explain it to the children. We say the deodorants all around the <laughs> landfill site, but we have <laughs> we have special um, uh, odor control, and you know it's sealed every day. So really, you can have a picnic there. You can make it a function. Um, you know, a lot of community groups such as the Women's Institute. Um, I had many church groups come over. So it, it really is a popular feature, not only for educational institutions, for community groups. Well, I mean, it'll be a first. No one else would have, will, will be able to top them for on, on a venue if they do that. Yes, yes. and it's actually, um, uh, you know, once it gets going, uh, you know, the tour gets going, and they, it, it's fascinating because it's actually, as I say, a work in progress. And every time you go there, it looks a bit different because it's getting a bit fuller here. They've moved uh, where they're operating from, and you can see where the next cell has been lined. So, you know, there's a whole dynamic to it, which makes it a very interesting uh, exercise. I'm going to give out a website. It's landfillconservancies.com. They can click on that thing, and there is a link there to Marion Hill right at the top of the page. And if you click on the Marion Hill link, you get the phone number, you get directions, you get all the information that you need to be able to book yourself on one of those tours. Is there anything else specific people need to know about? Or where, is there maybe an easier way to go about doing this, Guy? Well, you know, I think the easiest way is to phone, especially if you're in Durban, phone our cleansing and solid waste department somewhere along the line at our helpline. They will refer uh, the person to the correct uh, um, administrator who books the tours or they could email me and I, I will follow it up from there. But really, just phone our helpline and the helpline will refer uh, the query to, to the correct person and we can take it from there. But as I say, uh, there are times when it does get quite well booked up. So let us know quite in advance and we'll definitely try to accommodate all our requests. And you said it mainly on Thursday mornings, but if needs be, you could make another date, but it's generally on a yes. Thursday morning. Yeah, we've, uh, we've dedicated a th- Thursday morning 
somebody is available every Thursday morning to lead a tour. And, you know, if there's, especially with adult tours, two of them together, and, you know, we can take a whole grade, more or less, maximum of a bus uh, we can take at one at once because the BOMA can take about 70 uh, children. And, and then they can also see all the crafts from recycling, etc., as well. Guy, I am so glad I finally caught up with you and you could tell us about this because I think it's a wonderful addition to a destination in KZN. People can pop along and it sounds like a wonderful morning out, at least. Uh, go and visit the Marion Hill Landfill Conservancy. Thank you so much for contacting me initially and thank you so much for your time on the show this evening. Yeah, uh, no, it's our pleasure and we hope to see uh, all the people who want to come, come along and they are very welcome. Thank you so much indeed. Thank good, you very much. Good night to you. In the My Town feature this evening, I was chatting with listener Guy Kors. He's the Senior Education Officer with the Cleansing and Solid Waste Department of the Etiquani Municipality in KZN. And we were talking about the Marion Hill Landfill Conservancy. I told you you'd be surprised, didn't I? Well, for more information, contact numbers and a map, you can go to www.landfillconservancies.com or Guy says call the helpline at the Durban Solid Waste Department and they'll be able to put you in touch with the right people. Time to travel on SAFM. Well, I'm joined on the line this evening by one of my favourite guests. He's been on the show a couple of times, and I always wish I had more time to talk to him. It's Rob Kasky, and he is a world-renowned Anglo-Zulu war raconteur, and also he's an explorer of note. Went off to the Antarctic not that long ago, and he's going to be down in Cape Town in June at the one and only hotel to do some talks. So if you want to hear all his fabulous stories, I suggest you listen up now and book your seat. Rob, good evening. Welcome to the show. Oh, good evening, Karen. It's great talking to you again, and thank you for that lovely introduction. So let's start. You're, you're going to be speaking at the one and only on two dates, the 4th and the 6th of June. And let's talk about the 4th, first of all, because that's my favorite topic about talking to you about, and that's the Anglo-Zulu War. Well, one and only have been kind enough to have me on previous occasions talking about the well-known battles of the Anglo-Zulu War, namely San Juan and Rourke's Drift. But what most South Africans are blissfully unaware of is that this war that they expected to be over inside of three weeks dragged on for nearly seven months. And there were a huge number of other dramas and battles that unfolded, some reversals, some victories for the British. And one of the big dramas that unfolded was the death of the Prince Imperial of France, Louis-Jean-Joseph Napoleon, who was out here as a non-rank-bearing observer with the British, was killed in an obscure ambush situation on the 1st of June, 1879, and with it really came the end of the Napoleonic dynasty. And I'm going to be relating these stories about some of the battles, the death of the Prince Imperial, the final battle at Ulundi, and then, of course, I'm going to take the audience through the capture of King Pechua, who was only captured on the 28th of August, 1879, and what happened to him, which is a tragic story um, regarding his home arrest situation near Cape Town. Then he spent time in exile in England, met with the Queen on three occasions at Osborne House on the Isle of Wight, before being returned to a very unhappy civil war situation in Zululand. So these are all parts of the Anglo-Zulu War that aren't that well known, because we all know the big names, the big battles, but these are all the, the sort of stories behind the stories, if you like. Very much so. And really what happened when all the reinforcements arrived after the drama of Isantrawana and the British realizing how grossly they underestimated the Zulus, they called for massive reinforcements to come out from Britain. And that took some time. They only got here, really, towards the end of March and early April of 1879. And with that, the second invasion or the reinvasion of Zululand was planned. And with it 
claimed some remarkable battles and dramas at places like Gingendorf, Inyazan, Kloban, Kambola, um, in Tombi Drift, the death of the Prince Imperial, the Amphalosi River. I mean, it's just beautiful in these lesser-known areas of northern KwaZulu-Natal. Now, you have been known for many years as the man to go to if you want to go and do your battle, battlefield tours up in KZN. Are you still leading tours, Rob, I mean, to any of these places? Because we all know, as you, you know, that we go to the usual big battle sites. What about all these lesser-known ones? Well, um, Corin, I still do a lot of battlefield tours to these sites. Some of them are quite remote and difficult to get to. In places like Kilbane, you really need a four-wheel drive, particularly if you want to get to the top of the mountain and not do it uh, on foot, which entails a serious walk up a very precipitous slope. I'm still doing a lot of guiding in Zululand. You know, it keeps me fresh in terms of doing the lectures, the sort of which I'm going to do at the one and only. And I like the fact that the audience who may hear and engage with my stories feel that they have the opportunity to go onto these battlefields with me. So certainly a significant part of my business still is guiding on the battlefields. You know, it's one of the things I'm passionate about is is history. And I think a lot of what you're going to be talking about in this these talks at the one and only, specifically the Anglo-Zulu War, to- the one you're doing this time, is that it's almost the forgotten history. And, and the fact that you're doing what you do to bring it to the front of our minds that we don't forget and that we learn because that, you know, that's the, the whole point of what history is all about, to discover what happened in the past and not to repeat the same mistakes again. Well, you know, Colin, it's very kind of you to say so. I believe in that very strongly, and I think that the Anglo-Boer War between 1899 and 1902 does not enjoy the profile that the Anglo-Zulu War enjoys for various reasons. And one of them is that the British people particularly relate to the fact that here was a practically naked foe armed with a stick and his shield and his raw Zulu courage taking on Queen Victoria's army at the height of their Victorian power. And there's something that appeals to the better natures and angels about all that. And I am staggered at how little most South Africans know about this very important chapter in our history here in KwaZulu-Natal between the British and the Zulus. Now, you actually, uh, there was an amazing achievement. You were invited to speak at the Royal Geographic Society in London. Now, what did you talk about? Was that your Antarctic adventures or was, did you bring in some of the Anglo-Zulu war stories there as well? Well, you know, Corin, it's kind of you to ask about that. I think... If one is a public speaker of any sort, it's the pinnacle of your dreams to address the Royal Geographical Society, and there's a fair process that's involved to be invited and sponsored to actually speak in that very, very auspicious venue as far as I'm concerned. Lucky enough, after David Rattray so tragically died in 2007, to be asked to address the RGS, but I had to really do it with the Rattray's blessing and with their sanction because... It was a very important and esteemed venue for David, and he'd addressed it every year for three nights for some years prior to his death. So I only took up the challenge of addressing the RGS in 2010, September 2010 for the first time, and I didn't want to be seen by the audience to be following exactly in David Ratchet's footsteps. So what I did was I gave them a brief introduction to the Anglo-Zulu War. I spoke a little bit about the Battle of Isantawana, and then the bulk of the talk was about the Battle of Rourke's Drift. And that evening, thankfully, went down very well. And as a result of it, I was invited back in September 2012, two years later. And on that evening, I did my flagship talk called Going South with Scott and Shackleton, which was all about their exploration down in Antarctica.
It's quite an achievement, though, Rob. I mean, you know, it's, it's not every day that someone can claim to have spoken twice to the Royal Geographic Society in London. Well, Colin, you're very kind for saying so. You know, I have no illusions about what an honour and a privilege it was. It's 775 seats in there. It's one of the most magnificent venues in which to speak. David Ratcher and I always used to call it our Chamber of Terror because I don't sleep a wink the night before those talks and spend most of the day walking around other than one of London's beautiful parks or where I'm staying, trying to get my thoughts coherent for that evening. And when you step up onto the stage and the lighting's all been fixed on you and you've done your sound check that afternoon and you turn around and look out over 775 expectant faces, it really is a very daunting proposition as a speaker. What sort of response do you get from them, Rob? Is this all sort of news to them, what you're telling them now? They're all sitting there going, good heavens, I didn't know that. Look, quite a lot of the Anglo-Zulu war information is new to them. Because of the centenaries of Scott and Shackleton and Amundsen all being upon us, and it really has been at the forefront of media coverage and newspaper articles and National Geographic and so forth, quite a lot of the early Antarctic histories are better known to the British audiences. So certainly the shock value and the lack of awareness is far greater in the Zulu war talks than it's ever been Mm. in the early Antarctic talks. One would imagine that they'd know about the Antarctic stuff. I was wondering about the Anglo-Zulu war um, information because, as you say, it was was almost like we're not really going to mention that because it wasn't really a a good time for us as, as as the British people. So we all kind of just forget that happened kind of attitude or not. No, very definitely. I think that there is certainly that aspect to it. And what I find particularly rewarding is I was fortunate enough to grow up speaking Zulu alongside English as a child. And so I include quite a lot of Zulu, if I can, in my lecture and then translate it for the audience. And even just the pronunciations of various names of commanders and regiments that British people may have read about but are not quite sure how it's pronounced the glimmer of recognition when they realize that that's how it should be said. It's just fantastic. But I must say, when you're standing up there in front of that many people, and they are pretty much in a darkened environment and you're in the light on the stage, it's quite hard to read the the response until the end of the talk in terms of their ovation and afterwards chatting to them over drinks in terms of the various aspects and the responses that they have found from the talk. So this, I'm assuming, is a similar kind of experience. If people are going to be coming along to the one and only on the 4th of June, they'll be experiencing something very similar to what you've been talking about now. Colin, very definitely. In fact, I'd say even more so, because what I'm going to be talking about in both evenings are far less known aspects of both the Zulu War and early Antarctic exploration. And I'm hoping that I can pique people's interest in terms of them wanting to go away and read a little more about um, the Antarctic and about KwaZulu-Natal and the Zulu Nation and its history and King Petwa and his remarkable association with Queen Victoria and the Kalenzo family. And these names that flicker there in the recesses of our mind, I'm hoping I'm going to make people far more aware of. Right, so that was the 4th of June is the Anglo-Zulu War talk at the one and only. And then on the 6th of June, two days later, you're doing early exploration in Antarctica, 1910 to 1915. And that's, you that's say correct. that's also some more of the lesser-known people that were involved in that exploration down at, at the Pole. Well, very much so. You know, I mean, there are people who were down there with Scott, who I feel may well have created a different outcome in his journey to the Pole, and particularly his treacherous return to Ross Island that failed and the entire party died. I'm going to talk about that 
incredible midwinter journey to collect the emperor penguin's eggs, believing that penguins provided a unique link between reptiles and birds in terms of their embryology. And this journey that they did from the hut across to Cape Crozier is remarkable. It formed the, the real core of a book called The Worst Journey in the World by absolutely Cherry Garrard, who never recovered from the horrors of that journey and then being with a party who found Scott and his two companions dead in their tent. I'm going to talk about Tom Crean, the remarkable Irishman, who I always feel has been underrated in all this Antarctic exploration, along with some of the others who were around at the time, including an extremely tough Australian called Douglas Mawson, who at the same time as Scott was doing things in a different part of Antarctica that turned out to be one of the coldest and windiest areas of the continent. And the vagaries and the deprivations that his party suffered are simply beyond belief. I'm trying hard to get the word out to potential guests who might want to come along. I think that many people have got the impression that they've heard these talks, Mm. so they're not going to be coming this year. And most folks are blissfully unaware that my talks this year at the one and only are completely different to the talks I've done previously. We're talking now about the remainder of the Anglo-Zulu War, which I've never covered before, and about other characters outside of Scott, Shackleton and Amundsen in terms of early Antarctic exploration. So effectively, if you were there last year, this is part two. And it, it, you, you need the full experience. You need to come back this time to get the rest of the story. You didn't, because you sound like you gave us part of the story. We now need to come and get the rest. Well, Colin, that's a great way of putting it. And I'd be delighted if your listeners were gracious enough to come along to listen to one or perhaps both of these talks. And any plans to go exploring or adventuring any time soon this year, Rob? Well, I'm very fortunate to say that I've just returned, literally eight days ago, I returned from a remarkable month-long cruise up the west coast of Africa, calling at many remote ports that I've never been to before, and it was an inaugural cruise for this company called G-Adventures. We flew back from Dakar in Senegal, but had the most remarkable time visiting places like Angola, um, the Congo, uh, Benin, Togo, Sao Tome, Principe, uh, Ghana, and the Gambia, and um, I'm hoping, you know, I'm doing quite a lot of talks and research now on the early Anglo-Egyptian involvement in the Sudan between 1880 and 1898 with the death of Gordon and the Mahdi and the Dervishes. So I'm planning to get back to the Sudan this year and do some research up there and some guiding and hopefully improve my talks on that subject. And um, ah, there are a number of things on the card, so to speak, for the remainder of this year. And of course, come the end of the year, I'm going to be going back down to Antarctica to do some talks on the cruise ships that go down there from Ushuaia in South America. Gosh, you've got quite a busy year. I'm hoping sometime this year, Rob, we can catch up with you and you can pop into the studio and come and tell us about all these adventures you've been having recently. Um, So we'll try and find some time in between the adventures for you to come and chat with the listeners and give them just a taste of uh, what's coming up in the not-too-distant future with you. Well, Colin, that'll be a, a privilege and a delight. I'd love to do that. Rob, thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening. Colin, it's an absolute pleasure. Always great to talk to you. Good luck. I hope that people listen to this and may want to come along to the talks. And I look forward to our next chat. Thank you very much indeed. If you would like to book to go off and listen to Rob, he's going to be at the one and only hotel on the 4th of June doing the what he calls the rest of the Anglo-Zulu War or on the 6th of June, early exploration in Antarctica. You can book by calling 021-431-4511, 021-431-4511 or you can email the one and only and you email restaurant.reservations at one and only Cape Town. 
www.rob.com. But if you'd like to find out more about all of Rob's adventures, have a look at Rob's website. It's www.robkaski.com, and that's Rob and then C-A-S-K-I-E, robkaski.com. And that's it for Time to Travel this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. And I'll be back with you next Monday evening just after nine with the Law Report when attorney Michael Bagram will be joining us and we'll be talking labour law. That's the Law Report on Monday the 3rd of June. And remember, if you've missed anything this evening, you want some contact details, email me, travel at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Travel on SAFM. Stephen Kirk is up now with some nighttime music. Hi, Stephen.